0: Listener production.
1: Welcome to part two of The Real Chopper. By 2008, I could tell Mark Reid was in deep trouble. He was bankrupt and addicted to heroin and speed. He was no longer standing over drug dealers. He was robbing them of their drugs for his personal use. And his liver was slowly being ravaged by cirrhosis because of the hepatitis he acquired during 23 years in jail. And then it turned into cancer. I reckon the only reason he survived another five years was the support he got from his second wife, Margaret. He'd married a farmer's daughter, Ann Hodge in 1993 when he was in jail in Tasmania. After his release in 1998, she'd born him a boy, Charlie. But after the success of the chopper film, Reed's violent alter ego began to take over their marriage. Eventually, Marianne threw him out and Reed returned to Melbourne and to Margaret, who took him back and gave him another son, Roy. It was an unlikely romance the ageing standover man and the small and fiery Maltese woman who loved him.
2: Welcome to Adam Shand at Large, the real chopper.
1: The Nine Network's Underbelly Files Chopper focuses on Reed's turbulent relationship with Margaret and I certainly witnessed the fallout from that. I remember, in the year before his death, he actually left Margaret. He went to Queensland's Gold Coast, where he planned to die in the house of a mate. But his mate couldn't look after him, and so Mark returned home again, and Margaret took him back. Aaron Jeffrey played Chopper in the
0: series. I think the most important key for me was a love story, because it's 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 a love story against all odds, you know. And um, to me, that was really kind of the spine of of this. You know, does love heal? I felt
1: knowing them in that period that uh, if anyone was going to kill uh, Mark, it would have been Margaret. <laughs> and yeah. You're right, it is a love story and, and that he did need somebody else and he, w- he wanted someone to
0: show his vulnerability too and to yeah. be Mark again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you need a very strong woman and you need some because, you know, uh, I, I don't know, I'm just, um, you know, the character that I played, I'm presuming that jail was a very safe place because you, you were confined and held in a cell. And and supported by the prison guards that were quite often on your side and you got along with very well. In the outside world you don't have that and so Margaret would have been those boundaries, would have been those hands that held and also the whole, when you spend half your life, most of your life in jail, the outside world is probably not the safest place. Can you understand now the affection for Mark Reed for Chopper? I do now. I, I, I really didn't know anything about it at the start, so it's a journey that I've been on myself. L- like, like the women in his life you to say, he, there was a gentle, kind and generous spirit there. Um, he was very funny. I remember I spoke to a prison guy who spent 10 years with him and he said he was, he was out of the box. Never be anybody, I'll never meet anybody like him again. After
1: sacking Andrew Roper as his manager, Reid continued to write books and perform shows. There were rap songs and videos. One DVD crossed the desk of a mild-mannered executive named Andrew Parisi. Because you were one of the straightest guys I'd ever met, I reckon, at that point. I mean, in terms of this criminal thing, right? You, had, you, had, you were so naive about it, right? And you were... You'd keep asking me these questions, like, you know, is this safe? Is it... You know, I said, well, I think so.
2: Yeah, well, because my background was basically, you know, I was in the music industry and managed, you know, acts. And, I mean, they can be like animals, you know, sometimes, herding animals, but... But not murderers. But not murderers. And, you know, I set up a lab- I set up this label... I needed a big release to begin with. I knew the kind of power of the Chopper brand and thought it would be a good investment to kick off the label with that. M- Margaret started to tell me about some business issues she'd had with the previous manager, Andrew Roper, and with you know with with everyone old, really with, with their old publishers and uh, a guy who was doing the nut nuts for them and Choppers nuts yeah Choppers nuts and there was this who wouldn't of, buy that and like this kind of total bunny I sort of just kind of got drawn in and felt really sorry for them and said look let me have a look at it and let me see what i can do and and that sort of evolved into just becoming his business manager and then and then like andrew roper just got drawn into the whole personal world so it was you know
1: it became pretty intense because i guess you could see okay He's not what what the image is. He's actually a different Mm, person, mm. yet the image is strong, massive brand potential to do all kinds of things. What did you see the potential as? Yeah, for sure.
2: I mean, what I realised, again, just with, and it was when DVD was a viable medium, um, but, you know, just the title just, flying off the shelves um even though it wasn't very good even though it wasn't very good but it bit but it had the chopper brand on it so people what was the video it It was was just it it was a bunch of guys in sydney at the time and um they wanted to do a story about you know chopper's view of um the kind of whole melbourne underworld thing and you know it was really sort of poorly thought out and and i think they ran out of Stuff to ask him in about fifteen minutes, and then Mark just started telling his old war stories for about an hour and a half and so what came next? I suggested to Margaret that I could probably get Mark a substantial publishing deal um, and in fact, we did that and um, and got his first um, proper book release. Um, where he was properly um, acknowledged as the writer and got the kind of correct royalties and got a huge advance and all the rest of it. So he was kind of back in the game all of a sudden.
1: The book, One Thing Led to Another... Was not much different to the earlier tomes, but it still sold in droves.
2: Yeah, and I've noticed over the years people would just like to kind of go to the usual touchstones because they're easy sellers. That's kind of what works. And
1: I did the same thing. I mean my first Underworld story was in the bulletin, it was on Carl Williams and the Gangland War, right? Who do we have on the cover? Mark Chopper Reed. He had nothing to do with the story. Yet that edition sold off the stand and people could not believe, in fact, Carl Williams said to me, why have you got that guy on the on the cover? It's my story. Then he says, oh, but can I get his autograph? So he had that sort of star power, he, chopper. He, he
2: did. He had this incredible power, and, and again, because of my background and because I dealt with kind of various celebrities in the music industry and, and whatever, so I kind of knew the way that, you know, I knew the way that kind of worked and the way it, it, certain things clicked, and I could never quite, you know, it's the black art. I don't know why, but some things just work and some things don't. And, and to this day, I, I, I don't know why that happens. Mark was one of those guys. He just had that magic formula where he was incredibly endearing and charming and funny, but also had that mystique and he and people were frightened of him. And he was just that kind of mix of all those things. And you would literally, there would be hundreds of people turning up to his uh, book appearances, and it would be mums and dads and grannies bringing their grandchildren in to kind of get to meet Mark Reid. And I'd be sitting there thinking, do you know why this guy is famous? Do you actually know why he's sitting here? And and it was like he just became this cartoon character of himself. At
1: what stage did you realise, oh, my, my God, this is all bullshit? This is actually, this is Mark giving them what they want? Oh, I remember when we uh,
2: were having those initial discussions about doing a book And me suggesting that we kind of get into the nitty gritty and tell the story that's not been told so far. Um, And Mark was kind of pretty cool with it. Margaret was definitely concerned with kind of debunking the myth. Um, My feeling at the time was that he's so entrenched in our culture that it didn't matter. It just didn't matter what he said or what he didn't say you know, people just wanted to hear what he, what he had to say. So, and at the time he, you know, he was pretty straight with me and he just said, look, I haven't done anything like that. And that's just been a, you know, that was a current affair kind of turning that into, and I've just played along with it and I've never told them that that's not the case, but.
1: And how much was he trapped in the image created by the Chopper film by uh, by Andrew Dominic?
2: I think that was definitely, it, it was definitely a trapping for sure. Um, but again, I think at the time, you know, and it was sort of interesting because he would do like little promo videos for whatever we were working on and he would almost kind of emulate Eric Banner in his kind of doing his hello and, you know, you know, how you going sort of thing. And he would almost, you know, which
1: is really- bit early for Kung Fu, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, all, <laughs> yeah.
2: All that kind of stuff, you know, and, um, and Margaret would get really upset with him saying, you know, why are you putting on that voice? But, you know, he just didn't care. He was just, he was like, it, it works and- that's what pays the bills and it was just a job. And in fact, I remember saying to Margaret at one point that you need to kind of make your peace with it because just like Jimmy Barnes has to go out and do K-SAN every night, every single show, no matter what, it's just, that's that's what people want out of Chopper. He's Chopper, he's not Mark Reed, and that's what they want. It's Case Ann. so just roll it out, because that's what's going to sell tickets. And he understood it. He totally understood it, and he was cool with it.
1: The next book, Reed's last of 16 volumes, was closest to the
2: truth, I think. We did a couple of books. He did his second book. The Road to Nowhere. The Road to Nowhere, which he actually absolutely loved and thought it was the best book that he'd ever put together just because it was so kind of brutally honest
1: and i'll declare your interest now it was written by your partner simonia Baldi, who i think it was a terrific book and i think that she was much less susceptible to the myth building the bullshit she wanted to get past that past chopper and get to mark you know when i first suggested she should work
2: with mark on doing this book she again she was really reluctant and just kind of went oh do i really want to work with a guy like that and sure enough you know, to this day, she has just such a kind of special place for Mark in her heart, you know, and... Um- and, uh, so she would really go around and when he would kind of just go off into the usual diatribe about this or that, she'd really push him and go, no, come on, that's not true. What happened? Or I need you to think. And he'd get really cranky with her, but he would kind of, he'd be really tolerant just, you know, maybe because she just had a particular manner with him because she was female. Anyone else he'd ever work wor- worked with were blokes. So it was just a different dynamic. And I think she was just able to draw a lot of stuff out of him, um, that, Kind of
1: well, I'll that. never forget where he starts talking about Debbie, the transvestite girl in reform school. Yeah. Boys' home or whatever. And and the their kind of ambiguous sexual I thought <coughs> this is a different Mark Reed I'm seeing. You know, and I think it's twofold. One, it was
2: Simone being able to kind of draw him out on that stuff and and making him feel comfortable about it. But also the other thing is that I think Mark just was at peace. He was kind of just at, at peace really at where he was in life and <laughs> Sort of didn't really care. You had nothing to hide, and you know, it and it was what it was. You know, um, which was was really interesting. Yeah,
1: there's money flowing in the house again. The bankruptcy is is being dealt with. Uh, there is a future for them again. At the same time, the health is failing. Mm. What did you see your role? Because you were clearly more as Andrew Roper was. You were clearly more than just a manager. You were starting to become his conscience, his mentor, his 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 friend. I felt like I was a psychologist a
2: lot of the time. I would spend countless hours on the phone with Margaret just kind of talking her through what was going on with Mark just with his illness and whatever and it was a really scary time for them you know um, um you know he was you know terminal at that point and so you know it was a you know really frightening for everybody um i mean i would have long chats with both of them particularly with margaret though i became really tight with margaret um, and, and, and just try to help anywhere I can and I would take Mark to his doctor's appointments and I'd make sure I'd go in and see him in hospital, you know, pretty much every day just to check in on him and, again, there was no kind of money in it. It was just purely just a friendship thing and just kind of looking out for him and just making sure that he was making good choices and they were making good choices and I was just trying to assist and just, just be a kind of family friend Um uh, you know, just in the same way that Simone was, you know, diagnosed with cancer the year earlier and he, the first thing he did was get on the phone and just give her kind of this huge amount of encouragement about getting through it. And he came in to see her in hospital and you would grab pillows for her and, you know, much to the kind of shock of the nursing staff kind of going, is, is he okay to be in here? And it's like, yeah, yeah he's fine. He's totally fine. Um, so, you know, like, and that's, and that was, you know, I guess one of the frustrations is that, that media in general would always just want to talk about the kind of, bruising murderer who'd kind of chopped up 19 people and done all these things. But, you know, really, he was this, he was a really great dad, um, you know, um, and he kind of, you know, he loved both his kids. He was kind of... Compromised in kind of with certain things, but he well because he
1: couldn't he couldn't really openly engage with Charlie because yeah. of the obviously Marianne was the first wife. Yeah, they divorced. Margaret yeah. said basically if you go back down there, it's over for it us. He was a as political
2: well. hot potato. It was yeah. just kind of really impossible to kind of deal with. But he loved both kids. He loved Roy dearly, um, and you know he was just a he was just a really good person. Um, and, yes, I'm kind of well aware of all the things he had done or he would allegedly done and had spent a lot of time in jail. But my experience was that he was uh, just a, a real kind of stand-up guy, you know, and just he was kind of, he would do what he said he would do and he was always really um, loyal. He was, he, was, he was super loyal.
1: Yeah, when you mention uh, Mark the Good Father, it reminds me of a story when we were down there. For some reason, he came. We came to have lunch in Richmond there, and he had Roy with him. And Roy was running around and he got around the corner somewhere, and he, and he either bit or hit some other kid, some other roughing. I was going on in the and the father that came storming around to see who the, the parent was, and there he's confronted <laughs> by a Chopper. He's got like, "Hey, nice kid." <laughs> Reed's cirrhosis had progressed to liver cancer, but he was still using prodigious amounts of heroin. One fellow user told me he'd never seen anyone take more heroin in one session than chopper my experience was that
2: he was in control and so he would dabble when he wanted to dabble and then when he didn't want to he just didn't certainly i've never kind of met anyone with the kind of iron will and he would just kind of go right i'm i'm not doing this right now and and even i remember like going in and seeing him in hospital and he would smoke a lot he'd just you know he'd be like a pack two packs a day kind of guy so it would go into hospital and i'd go oh, how are you coping without smoking and he'd go oh well, I haven't even thought about it, you know, and it was just, he'd just switch on and switch off.
1: There was always a retinue of hangers-on who saw Mark Reed as a meal ticket. And interestingly, the
2: same thing as what Andrew Roper was saying is, you know, I'd see him dole out money to anyone. If he had money, he would just give it to anyone and just help anyone. And he'd always check with me and go, are you okay? Do you need any money? It's like, no, no, I'm all right, Mark. He's like, Yeah, Here, here's a grand. It's like, no, no, I don't need it. Um, and, you know, that was the sort of guy. So it was just about repaying that and just kind of going, you know what, I'll... I promise you, I'll just kind of look after you any which way I can.
1: By mid-2013, it was obvious to all those who knew him, Mark Reed's time was running out. I got a call from Mark saying, I'm dying, I need to make some money for Margaret and both boys. I want to sell a story. And out of that came the famous 60 Minutes interview. I got a call from Mark saying... I'm dying, I need to make some money for Margaret and both boys, I want to sell a story. And my attitude was, well, how many stories can you sell, Mark? You've done 16 books, documentaries, all kinds of stuff, but there was going to be one more interview. And I said, well, what more have you got to sell, Mark? And he said, murders. I said, what murders? You never told me about any murders apart from the ones we knew were fictitious. He said, no, 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 I'm going to tell the story. I said, well, I think you you better talk to Andrew about this. And uh, so he went to you, you had a discussion, and out of that came the famous 60 Minutes interview. What was your recollection of that? So Mark
2: rang me um, one night and said, I want to do, um, do one final interview and I want you to go and get me a truckload of money. And I said, do you really need to do this? I mean, this is going to be your legacy. Do you, do you really want to do this? And he went, look, he said, when I die... They're going to wipe their feet on me anyway. He said, so who cares? Just go and get as much money as you can. So I kind of thought, you know what? That's a pretty reasonable thing to say. Okay, I'll do that for you. And um, so I started scoping up the network's and uh, 60 Minutes with a winner-winner chicken dinner on that one. I couldn't believe, we won't say how much,
1: but I couldn't believe how much money you got it. Yeah, it was pretty pretty decent. This is Mark's greatest heist. Totally. A deal was struck with Mark, who was revealing very little of what he was going to say, but he promised to reveal the dark side of Australia's favourite standover man. I got the sense that this was an opportunity to show that this lovable rogue was actually a bad guy, was actually a villain. And there were things that we could now pin onto him, murders, that would explode the the Uncle Chop Chop myth. And as you say, Mark was prepared to go along with that. Mm. And,
2: and, you know, and so, you know, he literally kind of did his research on some, some various murders that were never solved and he thought, right, I can place myself there and they can't prove or not prove it. That's just, that's just this... Yeah, you know, um, and so he kind of worked with those. And I remember one particular incident where um, he was talking about a murder, or where he'd kind of dumped the body in the cellar of a of a pub, um, and and he's looking and pointing down at the cellar, going, "It was in there. That's where I dropped it off." And they're going, "Where?" And he's like, "There." And so they're all the, the entire crew are in there with the camera and the sound guys in there, and this tiny little. Kind of beer beer seller. And he's just looking at me, just laughing. And I I just, I just, I literally had to walk away because I thought they're going to know the gags up.
1: I'd been in a meeting prior to the interview where Mark told us he was going to confess to four killings. Siam Ozakam he'd shot in self-defence. Now he called it murder. There was a 1971 slaying of a Melbourne crim named Desmond Costello. He claimed that in 1975, he'd stomped and then hanged a serial pedophile named Reginald Isaacs in Pentridge Prison. And finally, he would confess that he'd murdered an outlaw bikey, Sidney Michael Collins in Casino, New South Wales. Reed had shot Collins in the guts back in 1992 and the biker had lagged him to the cops. So in 2002... Reed had exacted revenge or so he said it was really, a new and strange place, really
2: weird territory because you know I was like this kind of totally straight guy and all of a sudden I could be potentially you know part of this murder investigation I'm thinking how am I going to get drawn into this how is this how am I going to explain this to my mum and dad
1: the guy who'd passed on the Chopper Reed video now <laughs> is now right. suddenly getting involved in murders involving right. Chopper Reed right. so yeah and and so the whole thing was set up it was done down there at, at Pentridge I think it was the a
2: division a division which they actually yeah. called D division, but it's actually A division. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was kind of beautifully shot and all the rest of it. And, they, you know, and they, in, in fact, I think it was all four, they normally have four segments, and I think all four segments were on Chopper. That it was the ty- entire hour. And, you know, it was that thing of like, look, we'll be really respectful of his death and, you know, and sure enough, the you know, the, you know, the, the day of his funeral, you know, I turn the TV on and there's the promo kind of starting and, you know, it was just all about ratings. And, you know, Mark was right that it, it just didn't matter and, you know, it served its purpose and, you know, he had a bunch of money that, that was for his family and, um, you know, and he actually kind of had the last laugh and just made a total joke of, of the whole thing.
1: Because at the same time you were doing a documentary about him, you were filming interviews with him and other people and you had a chance to ask him much the same sort of questions. Well, how many people did you kill? You, 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 you talked about 19 people, 50 people, 500, whatever it was. I mean, there's so many different, different numbers in all the books. But did you get a chance to say, well, Mike, what's the truth? I did,
2: I did. We I uh, spent countless hours uh, with him, talking to him about all sorts of stuff and... Um, and he basically said it was two, and he said it was definitely one. It was definitely Siam. Um, Siam the Turk, Ozakam, yep. Cam, yep. yep. Um, and the which other, was self-defence. Yep, and he said the other one was the pedophile, which he'd kind of beaten up and, you know, he didn't kind of actually murder, but he died. He, you know, he died. So it was kind of very vague or whatever.
1: But, but, but of course, when I, when, when I researched that, I proved it was impossible. He couldn't have done that one. He wasn't even in the same division, and the guy had died clearly of hanging. It was not a mark on his body. I think, you know, the thing, uh, you know, the conundrum for Mark
2: was it was a riddle, you know. And so I kind of feel like if he was talking to a bunch of lads in a pub, it would be 23. And if he was talking to me, because there was kind of a mutual respect and he didn't want me to think bad of him, he would kind of just roll it back. But he could never quite roll it back. And we just kind of, you know, everyone sort of, the inner circle knew it was just the one and that was it and it was self defense. Um, you know, I mean that's not to say he wasn't kind of a seriously heavy guy in his day and he would have been frightening. There's no question. I didn't get any of that ever. But he would have been kind of frightening. But he wasn't a murderer. He wasn't that that, that wasn't his thing, you know? And yet he was
1: he was prepared to let the world think he was for that final interview.
2: Because the thing is, you know, he it was a childhood dream. You know, like, he wanted, to be, he wanted to be the cowboy. He wanted to be the roughest, toughest cowboy around. And he got to that point. He got there. He was this kind of big, scary guy, without doubt. Um, and when he got to that point, he kind of went, well, this isn't much fun. I can actually make a living way. You know, there are kind of better ways to make a living. And, you know, just even with his paintings, I mean, you know, he thought that was the biggest. He thought, well, you know, why wasn't I doing this earlier? This is ridiculous. Why was I standing over people when I could just flog paintings for five grand?
1: <laughs> but there was one other show. There was a 60-minute show. There was also the last show at the Athenaeum Theatre and I was there that night Mm. and it was a very bittersweet uh, time. John Mangos was the the host. He'd organised all that. Mm. And, I mean, I was hoping that he would come out and be very honest about who he was, the background so forth. But John Mangos said to him something like, we've heard all these stories and so forth, some are true, some are not – What are we getting tonight? And his reply was, well, whatever you want. Mm. So even at the end, he wasn't going to change. Yeah, so the idea of that show
2: was that, you know, I'd seen a previous a previous show where he would sort of just get up and raffle off bits and pieces, but it was obviously a pretty tired format by that point, point. and because he was unwell and I didn't really want him to have to kind of think about what he was going to talk about next, I thought, right, let's just get an interviewer, we'll do it as a, a Q&A format, make it really easy on him, it was about three weeks before he passed, he was an incredible amount of pain that night, he was such a trooper really, but he... You know, I think he just wanted closure, um, and just wanted to kind of make it that last public appearance, um, and again, I think he set out to just be really honest and then kind of looked at this packed theatre and kind of went, I just have to give them what they want.
1: It's kind a happy ending too for me. I was watching it and I'm actually getting a bit goosey thinking about it now, um, when he called Margaret and Roy up on stage and, and, you know, all the criminal bullshit just fell away. This is a family man who was confronting his own mortality Mm. and his hopes and fears and his tenderness was on show. Absolutely, you know,
2: and, and they were, you know, and they meant more than anything to him, you know. They were just, I mean, that was his safe place in the end. Um... And you know he wanted to kind of have another go at life, and he wanted to be this performer and writer and do all these kind of things. But ultimately, the most important thing was, um, you know, how much he loved his, you know, his boys, and he loved Roy, and and he loved Margaret, and you know, and and you know, she was his saviour.
1: You ended up being there at his deathbed.
2: I did, I did, and um, and you know, you just kind of realised that no matter how tough you are no matter what you've been through or how much money you've got in your bank account you know we all just kind of end up the same way uh so um mark was not fearful of anything quite genuinely he was not scared of anything but the only thing that he was fearful of was that he wasn't properly dead and so he asked roy to just make sure just give him a prod and uh and so roy went and did that as just a kind of just because he promised his dad that he would And it was kind of, you know, incredibly touching and incredibly sad.
1: In one sense, Mark Reed's success told us more about ourselves than him. He knew what we wanted and served it up with gusto. And even when Chopper told us his motto, never let the truth get in the way of a good story, we just chose to ignore it. When you asked Mark, um, is there a song or is there an image that that you would like people to remember you by, what did he say to you?
2: He started singing the Great Pretender by the platters, <laughs> and uh, and I just thought that was just be- just such a beautiful moment. What mark do you want to leave on this planet?
0: I was the Great Pretender.
1: <laughs> you miss him?
2: Absolutely. He was such a such a great guy to talk to. Absolutely.
1: You can read more of Mark Reed's story in my book, The Real Chopper from Penguin Books. Thanks for listening. I'm Adam Shand. The producer was Sarah Grinberg. Mixing, editing and theme music by Matt Nikolich. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. This has been a Real Crime production. Written and produced by Adam Shand.
0: Listener.